Good morning, Marcia. Good morning, Carl. How are you? I'm doing fine. I hope you are too. I am. Thank you. Well, welcome to A Life in Biography. I'm speaking with Marcia Gordon, and I'm going to ask her to introduce herself and tell us why she's here. <laughs> well, thank you, Carl, for having me. Um, so I am a professor and the director of the Film Studies Program at North Carolina State University, and I am here to talk about my recent biography, uh, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life, and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott, uh, which was published recently by the Trade Division of University of California Press. That's great. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in Ursula Parrott. And I have to say also, just for myself, I didn't even know the name Ursula Parrott, let alone read anything by her. And once I found out about your biography, I read uh, The Ex-Wife, which I just think is a marvelous book. Yeah, thank you. I do, too. As a matter of fact, one of my missions is to try to get people to start teaching ex-wife, you know, at the college level, high school level. I think it really deserves a place alongside, you know, books like F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So ex-wife, um, and obviously my book is called Becoming the Ex-Wife, um, to pay tribute to that, was a, a 1929 best-selling first novel by a woman named Ursula Parrott. And Carl, you are not alone in never having heard of her. Um, it would be shocking if you had heard of her because she completely had been erased and disappeared from the history of 20th century American literature, despite the fact that she was a best-selling author, widely adapted in Hollywood, very significant public personality from the late 1920s through the 1940s. And um, I came to know about her uh, in a wonderfully circuitous way, which is that someone had tipped me off that there was a, some unpublished or unproduced screenplay material that F. Scott Fitzgerald had written for MGM in the 1930s that was at the University of South Carolina Special Collections that they had bought at auction. And I was giving a talk at University of South Carolina and um, was like, well, I'm going to pop into the archive and look at these materials just to see, you know, what they're all about. And um, I had a very limited amount of time. And so I looked at the finding aid and there were three screenplays and one of them had a really great name. It was Infidelity. I was like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, so I said, okay, I'll look at that material. And so I started reading the screenplay and looking at Fitzgerald's notes in the margins. And you know, one of the things that I wrote in my notebook was um, story uh, adaptation um, was from a cosmopolitan story of the same name, Infidelity, written by a woman named Ursula Parrott. And I wrote, who is Ursula Parrott? Question mark. I'd never heard of her. Um, and so I didn't think much about it. And I actually embarked on this project where I thought I was going to write a book slash republish um, the screenplays that were never produced. And I started talking to the legal departments at the um, studios to try to figure out who owned the rights. And while I was doing that, I started researching Ursula Parrott because I thought, well, I'm going to write something contextual to explain, you know, why Fitzgerald was hired to, you know, adapt the story, why it was never made, which um, we can talk about has a lot to do with the history of Hollywood and censorship and the culture of the 1930s. But um, as I dug deeper and deeper into Ursula Parrott, 
I realized she was this extraordinarily fascinating woman, an incredible writer, um, very contemporary in the issues she was engaging with, especially having to do with questions of gender and women's place in the modern world. And I had a moment where everything kind of clicked and I was like, okay, um, I don't think it's as important to write another book about F. Scott Fitzgerald, there are hundreds, as it is to write the only book um, about Ursula Parrott and to try to bring her back into the conversation about 20th century life and letters. And, and that's how it happened. And it felt um, a little horrifying, to be honest with you, because, <laughs> you know, when you talk to people and you're like, oh, I'm writing a book about Ursula Parrott, who? Uh, well, she, oh, what book? You know, like even people who, you know, are professors of American literature, like nobody knew who she was. So that's, that was the precipitating event. So I, I love that I kind of hit a brick wall with Fitzgerald, took a right turn and ended up with Ursula Parrott. And I'm so happy um, that I did because I really think uh, the, the process of, of diving into her life um, and spending so much time trying to get to know her through, the, through archives and through the, her own writing has just yielded a, a very rich individual that, um, that I hope people will begin reading and, um, and teaching again. Before we talk about, uh, say more about Parrot and, and also that novel and maybe some of her other work, I think especially people who listen to this podcast, many of whom are biographers, will wonder, how did she get a contract for that book? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So um, I had an agent. Um, so first off, let me, let me uh, acknowledge that one of the reasons I was able to research and write this book, which... I mean, was a really intense process because when Ursula Parrott died in the 1950s, I mean, she was not in a good place in life. Nobody tended her legacy. Nobody had thought about her for many years. There's no Ursula Parrott archive. I had to do a lot of digging <laughs> in order to write this book. And I also felt that it was important for me to read everything she had ever written. So I read all, you know, 130 or so stories and, um, and serialized novels, all 20 of her books, all of her correspondence. And I did that because I was able to do that because I had two amazing fellowships. I had a National Humanities Center fellowship, which is located in the Research Triangle Park of North Carolina. That is a residential fellowship where you have unbelievable resources at your disposal and complete focus on your project. And then I had a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Fellowship back to back. So I had two years. And that, um, that NEH fellowship for um, people who are writing biographies uh, with a trade audience in mind encourages scholars to write for a general audience. And so it's a really wonderful fellowship, relatively new in the NEH profile. Um, so um, I, I got an agent. Um, uh, and uh, How hard was that, getting uh, an agent? I had the most extraordinary luck because my agent found me. Um, she was looking at NEH Public Scholars, and she oh. and she loved my project. Um, her name is Alexis Stark. She's wonderful. Um, she uh, uh, she came to me and said, "I'm really interested in this project. You know, do you have an agent? Is anyone representing you?" And I was like, "Oh no! On my major, of course, I didn't say this. On my major list of horrifying <laughs> things to do is to try to get an agent. Right? That's yeah. a very intimidating process." 
And so now, so now we know how to do it. All you have to do is get an NEH grant. Get an NEH public scholar, and one <laughs> will come, come to your door. Yeah. yeah, really worth all the years of rejection. I mean, I I got rejections from NEH and from National Humanities Center probably seven or eight times over the course of my career before I actually got one. So also stick with it because you never know when the magic will happen. But anyway, so I got an agent. And she helped me develop the proposal. This is my first book for a general audience. So, you know, I've published um, two other uh, monographs and I've edited two collections. Um, and my last book prior to this was a book about the film director, Sam Fuller. And that book had me veering towards biography. And I realized as I was writing it that I was writing it more and more for a, a general audience and less for an academic audience. So this... I knew that my next book, I really wanted to write for a general audience. And so um, that was an intention that I set from the start. But so, so Alexa helped me develop the proposal and, um, you know, we did our first round of pitches. I was so excited. I'm like, okay, you know, all the biggest, right? You start with the biggest presses. Sure. And, um, uh, I, I can tell you almost quoting what every rejection said, which was, this is a wonderful proposal. It is a fascinating story. I can't wait to read this book. But there, what is the market for a book yeah. about a woman no one's ever heard of that has no books in print? We can't sell this book. And uh, we yeah. wish you the best of luck. We're sure you're going to find a wonderful home for it, but it's not here. And it was like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, crap, maybe uh, I shouldn't have spent... <laughs> <laughs> two, two straight years plus like two years like leading up to it working on this project and you know um and there was a wonderful fortuity that happened in the midst of getting um these rejections uh from press after press um i was connected with um my extraordinary editor at university of california press reina polivka and she um, was working on a book with a mutual friend. And so my agent started talking to her and Raina got the book right away. And University of California Press has really been putting a lot of energy into their trade facing books. So this was something that um, they used to do a lot more of and then they kind of stopped doing it. But Raina is really one of the people there um, working on uh, acquisitions in trade. And she just, I mean, I had like tears of joy when I read my first email that came through my agent from her that was like, you know, we want a meeting right away. We want this book. I, I love this story. And she just had faith in it. And, you know, that's, that's what it takes, right? For any you know, book. Yeah. It takes yeah, the right know, person that, that gets you and gets the project and is willing to go to the mat for you with an editorial board. You said it. Uh, I've had this experience uh, with several of my biographies that have gotten, you know, multiple rejections, many, many rejections. Yeah. And then you find that your agent or you or the combination of the two of you find that right editor. Yep. And that's what makes all the difference in the world, because the problem with those other editors, even the ones that sent you those complimentary comments, is they have no vision. Right. They have they have no sense uh, in, it, to them, the world is static, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not dynamic. Right. It's a world which is fixed. And because it's fixed, there's no place for your book, yeah. which is just absolute crap. Yeah. 
Well, and it's it's interesting, and I realize that the, the publishing industry, like every other industry, you know, has bottom lines that they have to meet. And I, yeah. I remember a couple rejections from big presses that said um, something like, "Oh, we published." these two books last year about like little known women and they sold, you know, 200 copies and we like, we can't do that again. And so you also are really dependent on like a history of success or failure within whatever category they are imagining your book fits into. And, and of course what, what nobody could have imagined when we were going through this was that McNally editions unbeknownst to me, and I had nothing to do with it, ended up republishing Ex-Wife like a week after my book came out. So they published her bestseller um, from 1929, which is an amazing book, was adapted into The Divorcee with Norma Shearer in 1930, which gave her an Academy Award, her only Academy Award, I should say. So there was this energy that like, this was the universe doing Ursula Parrott and me and University of California Press and McNally Editions and Elisa Bennett, who wrote the, um, the excellent introduction to that republication, a favor <laughs> by, by creating this, um, uh, it's like the zeitgeist of, of Ursula Parrott because, because of that synergy, you know, we've had pretty amazing review coverage. I mean, a really long review that just came out in LA Review of Books and in The Baffler and in The New Yorker and in The New York Times um, and in New York Review of Books and your review um, that came out in The Sun. And so, I, yeah, I mean, it just feels like that that the um, even though the odds were kind of stacked against me when we were pushing this book out to market, it found such a good home and it was so cared for. I think the production of it was um, seamless and beautiful. I love the cover. I love the design of the book. They've been wonderful to work with. I just I feel like it worked out for the best. Um, uh, and yeah, that the that somehow the 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 confluence of Ursula Parrot energy is in the air and I'm doing all that I can to to kind of help push that along. Yeah, I've been impressed with California. I have to say I've got a a book that I'm thinking of submitting to them because I I really think that uh, they they have just done a spectacular they job have. With the book. And uh, I was just when I, you know, I I asked actually a publicist at University of California Press cuz she had worked with me at Virginia you know, do you have any biographies coming up? And she said, well, there's this one of Ursula Parrott. Yeah. And I thought, who's Ursula Parrott? Yes. And then, I don't know, almost immediately, I guess I think I went to Amazon and I saw that McNally Editions were, were going to publish X-Wife. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to read the novel, if, at least one book by yeah. Ursula Parrott before I review your biography. And then, and we should get into this, I read X-Wife and I was stunned. Yeah. I'm stunned because number one, it gives you such a sense of the period yeah. uh, that that Ursula Parrott was living in and that women were living in. So it's it's valuable in and of itself for that. But then it was so contemporary to me. Yeah, there isn't anything as I could, as far as I could see about that book that's dated. Yeah. Oh, it is. Uh, you know, I, I said a version of this on a podcast that I did recently, the San Francisco experience, which is that you read The Great Gatsby and you think of it as a period piece, like it's very of its moment. But to me, yeah. ex-wife manages to be both of its moment and of our moment. Like it has 
a relevance that you don't get with The Great Gatsby. And that that's extraordinary. And I also think Parrot is one of the great novelists of New York City. I mean, mm -hmm. she captures the textures of New York City, the restaurants, the speakeasies, um, the streets, the fashion. I mean, she deserves a place alongside every great writer about New York City in this time and place. And this is just, you know, keep in mind, you've read this one book, right? There yeah. are dozens of stories and other novels that also take place largely in New York City. Um, it's where she lived her adult life. Um, and she liked to write about what she knew. Um, but, I, but I agree, I find this novel to be extraordinary. And, um, and, and I think the fact that she is dealing, imagining life in the New York, uh, in, life in New York in the, in the 1920s, divorce, um, dating, working, um, and then things like rape and abortion, from a you know writing from a woman's perspective seeing the world through that lens um it's it fills a huge gap <laughs> um, i agree it, you know it, it's it, it, the uh, the kind of detail about her protagonist's work life yeah. was just absolutely fascinating it was really interesting and i have to say there there are other reasons why i'm particularly um impressed with this book and intrigued with this book is it was published in 1929, the year that The Sound of Fury was published. Yes. But for me, the story is even better than that because it was published by Hal Smith, yep. who was Falker's friend and publisher. And Hal Smith had left Harcourt Brace because they said, oh, the sound, it's sort of like your rejection letters. They said, this is fabulous. We don't see a market for this book. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. So, and I mean, and yeah, they, the, those books were marketed alongside each other. And, you know, talk about timing, too. I mean, the book comes out and Parrot's first big check comes in October 1929. Mm. So like perfect timing, right? Like not not so early that she invested in the stock market before it completely yeah. collapsed. Um, and just as everybody is, you know, uh, suffering this horrible shockwave as a consequence of that crash, she gets her first big paycheck, goes to Hollywood. I mean, she takes off at this unbelievable moment in American history. Um, and, you know, she's everywhere. If, if you were around in the summer and fall of 1929, uh, you would have been talking about Ursula Parrot. You would have known her name. Um, she was not an obscure figure. And so part of what is interesting to me is also how and why people disappear. Um, why is it that everybody knows Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Faulkner and Dorothy Parker? And, you know, it's not just that that male writers are remembered and acknowledged, but there is this kind of hierarchy of value that's placed on certain writers and certain kinds of writing. And I, I don't think you have to make like exceptions to quality or to interest in order to become more inclusive in who you're thinking about as great writers of this time and place. You mentioned the point about tending a legacy. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. And also you mentioned there was no Ursula Parrot archives. So we need to talk about what what you you did with that problem. Yeah. This business of tending a legacy is interesting because uh, writers like Fitzgerald or or Faulkner, for example, fairly early on they attracted the interest of collectors. Yep. And those collectors would get in touch with the authors, would get in touch with Faulkner, for example, 
And it, I'm not sure he was entirely aware of how valuable someday, maybe not immediately, but someday his manuscripts yeah. would become. And she had nobody like that. And she, and she didn't have a sensibility which said, you know, I, for my own protection, I'm going to do something with these manuscripts. You know, she needed you to create an Ursula Parrott archive. That's right. Yeah, there's there's so many things I have to say about that. First off, I'm an archival researcher to my core. So this is what I love doing. And so this was a very interesting research challenge, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to write this book. Well, I can obviously read everything that was published. That's just a matter of taking the time. You know, I immediately, once I decided I was writing this book, went on eBay, bought, you know, as many copies as I could of, you know, magazines and, and the books that were, you know, around, uh, you know, used copies from the, you know, you know first printings or whatever, second printings. Um, and then um, started trying to figure out, okay, well, how, like, that's not enough, right? <laughs> um, so... There's a few things that I did. One, the most, um, the lowest hanging fruit in some ways, although the thing that takes the most time is, of course, we are so privileged to be um, conducting research uh, in, in a moment where there are PDF full text searchable databases of all sorts, right? Yeah. So all of those amazing historical newspaper collections, um, New York Times, LA Times, all the regional newspapers that you can put in a name but in spelling variants, right? Because she was often, her name was often misspelled with one R or one T. And so, um, you know, I probably have, you know, 3000 articles um, or mentions or advertisements or whatever, you know, that I started collecting. And I had a, a researcher, um, an undergraduate researcher who was really wonderful, Sarah Guy at NC State, um, who helped me pull these materials together. And then of course there's, Ancestry.com, which is an unbelievable resource, right? Because I, you know, this was during the pandemic. So I'm writing this book. My National Humanities Center Fellowship was 2019 to 2020. So they sent us all home in March. Um, and so I was having to conduct a lot of this research at a time where I couldn't get on a plane and go to New York and go to Oregon, wherever I was finding materials. So Ancestry.com was incredible for finding marriage certificates and divorce and birth records and researching family histories. Um, but then there was also the very important thing was I was like so determined to try to convey um, a sense of her voice because one of the things that I found so moving about Parrot once I started reading her personal writing outside of her published writing, which is a whole other matter, is that she was so smart and so witty. And so um, she had one of those great, even though she was born and raised in Boston and had a Radcliffe education and Boston Latin girls school, um, she had such a New Yorker wit and sensibility to my mind. And I only knew that by reading her voice. And so there are two major collections of letters that, um, that saved uh, this project really, because I, I don't know that I could have actually written this book at least not as um, uh, vividly as um, as I, I hope that I did without these materials. And one is that her literary agent, George Bai, who it was a major uh, yeah. literary agent for many people, Charles Lindbergh, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, had all of these clients in his New York agency. Um, his agency papers are at Columbia University Special Collections. And 
he had every letter to and from on file that stayed in the archive. And they were not just agent client. They were very, very close friends. In some ways, I think he was really her only real friend that she sustained over a period of time. And even when he resigned as her agent, when she was really kind of botching deadlines and struggling with a lot of things in the 1940s, um, I know he tried to keep up a friendship with her. And so there are hundreds of letters. Um, yeah, right there, I want, I want to interrupt for just a sure. second. To say that George, as you say, George By was really important. He was the agent for one of my subjects, Rebecca West. Yeah. But th that's another thing about reading your biography that I think writers and certainly biographies, biographers will be interested in, is the care that he took yes. uh, with her is, is just phenomenal. Yeah, he, um, uh, yeah, this, and, and I've got to believe that she was not the only one, right? I, I haven't read his correspondence with his other clients. And, you know, uh, certainly she was a, a, a tumultuous client to have, but he, um, he really, he, he tried so hard to, help steer her on course when he saw her veering off course. And, you know, he tried to help her with her finances and help her make smart decisions about like paying off her country estate um, that she bought in Connecticut where her son and her sister lived, um, you know, knowing that the depression was going to take a toll on uh, the amount that um, authors would get for their stories and novels. Um, and he also just tried to get her to, kind of settle down and like not be so frenetic and not feel so torn between, you know, her adventures that she loved to take travel and these um, tumultuous relationships and uh, marriages and divorces and all the things that she uh, kind of put herself through over the course of this, especially 1930s uh, wild decade that she had. Um, but he really like, he loved her. I mean, you can just tell and he and um, George By and his wife, Arlene, they had a, a country house near where Parrot was and um, in Weston. And, you know, they socialized together out there. And George By had this group of like fun loving writers and personalities who would get together and go on these little adventures in, in New York City. And, and she was part of that. It was kind of her Algonquin um, social group. So um, yeah, that was a very important relationship. But, but I want to mention also the other collection. So um, after Paris got Parrot got divorced, um, actually before she got divorced, but after she was separated, she had this relationship with a man named Hugh O'Connor, who was an up and coming journalist at the time and went on to um, a, a kind of fantastic career in journalism. And um, uh, he was really the love of her life, really broke her heart. And interestingly enough, he saved every letter she ever sent him. And that is in his personal paper collection. So it were it not for these two men who saved her letters. And obviously the, the, I benefited greatly from the fact that these relationships were so different, right? So the agent relationship, she was very revealing with her agent about how she was feeling, how she was doing, what she was going through, what she was struggling with. And then this lover who she adored, but who was breaking her heart um, but who she also spent a lot of time talking about modern relationships and gender roles. I mean, that was part of their correspondence was like, women do this, men do this. Why? And this like, is, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah this, I was just going to say, this is speculative, but, and, and I mentioned this in my New York Sun review of your biography. I was, I'm just, I just haunted by the fact that he kept all her letters. Me too. Because some of her letters are hardly flattering to him. Yeah. 
Uh, and do you have any sense of why he did that? No, I have no idea, except that he must have known one that she had some kind of import, if not to him, then to you know, kind of a larger. I mean, he donated his papers, his family, you know, um, you know, tended his legacy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, no doubt. It, it almost, re yeah, it almost redeems him. Well, yeah. Oh, 100%. Because, uh, again, if I had been missing either of these collections, the book would just be so greatly impoverished. I mean, what I, I set out as one of my intentions with the book to bring her voice in as much as was possible, right? And the only way I could do that, I mean, I could do that through the stories because she wrote so much from her life. And I really got to understand, like, this is direct from life that she is like, you know, semi-fictionalizing in a book so I can use that material. But really her voice, I, I could read her letters all day. She just is a wonderful, wonderful writer. I would love to see her letters, you know, republished um, alongside some of her other shorter writing. And I'm out there looking if anybody wants to publish some really good stuff. <laughs> Hit me up. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because someone may, I, I think you're absolutely right that this stuff should be republished. After Ex-Wife, what next? What's what's the next Ursula Parrot book I should read? Well, uh, so first off, nothing is in print. So, um, so this is a matter of uh, you know going into the uh, the world of buying used copies or borrowing yeah. through your library. Um, but you know, again, I really am trying very hard to get people interested in republishing materials. Um, you know, her her next book is called Strangers May Kiss, which was also adapted into a movie that's a really really fascinating book one of my favorites though is called next time we live uh -huh. um, which was made into uh, a movie with jimmy stewart and margaret sullivan called next time we love by the way the reason they changed the title is they didn't want audiences to think it was about reincarnation <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious but what yeah. i love about next time we live is it's a book about a couple both of whom have extraordinary careers. So these are two driven, ambitious, career-oriented individuals who love each other, have a child, but can never figure out how to spend a moment together because he's off overseas having his journalistic career. She's having her performing career in the United States. They're both at the top of their games, but it is a melodrama of absence and nobody is to blame. This is not like if only the woman would have you know, done a good mother act, this wouldn't have happened. It is just about the consequences of uh, a world in which there are two equal partners in career, both of whom want great success. And the thing that has to give in that, right? You can't have everything. That was to me, one of Parrot's kind of visionary mantras. She didn't use the term, you know, having it all that you can't. Um, but that's what she wrote about a lot in her letters, in her um, uh, nonfiction, and uh, also in her stories that it's just, it's impossible in this kind of frenetic modern world for people to be really good um, at their work, really good at being wise, really good at being mothers, you know, doing all of this stuff, like you can't do it all. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's a, an important book. I would love to see that one. Republished yeah. and you know a bunch of her short stories. I mean, I, her short stories are so fantastic. I mean, she there's and her serial not serialized novels. The one that I would like to most see republished is called Breadwinner, 
And um, Breadwinner is uh, starts in New York and uh, it's set you know, before the depression. And it's about a woman who's an up and coming screenwriter. So it has great like hooks with Hollywood. And um, it, uh, it tells a story about a woman who um, is raising a daughter on her own because she's a widow and um, is you know, going up through the, the ranks as a screenwriter. And the man she's in love with um, loses his job because he basically is incompetent and it's the depression and everyone's cutting back. And so he feels like he can't marry her because he can't support her. So he says like, well, look, you know, until I get back on my feet again, you know, we can be lovers and that's all I can give you because I can't possibly marry you. That would be undignified. And she says, okay, well, like if that's all you can give me, that's fine. And it doesn't end well. And it's just a disastrous cautionary tale about kind of male insecurity and chauvinism and, you know, parrots women characters are almost always great successes at what they do if they decide that they want to work. And I, I just think that, I mean, I think that one could be a movie um, adapted into a, a contemporary movie. It would be a very interesting period piece because it's all yeah. you know, set in New York and Hollywood and yeah. Yeah, it would be. Uh, and the next thing we need is a movie about Ursula Parrott. I agree. I think she would make a fantastic <laughs> A fantastic subject. And, you know, I always hold out hope, Carl, when you said that thing about the archives, there's a story I tell in my book about um, when Parrot's in her uh, period of decline in the 1940s and she's, um, you know, kind of lost her ability to her. She's lost her agent. She's not publishing anymore. She keeps trying to kind of get back in the game and she's in a hotel in New York and she runs out on her hotel bill and, um, there's a newspaper item that uh, that reports that all she left was like a typewriter and a suitcase of like manuscripts. And I thought, oh, my God, like maybe maybe somebody took those manuscripts and didn't maybe they didn't throw them away. You know, my first instinct is like, oh, the dumpster. But maybe somebody brought them home and stuck it in their attic. And one day, you know, I'll get the eBay alert. <laughs> Um, yeah. you know, or they'll, you know, I, it's a tiny microscopic kind of possibility, but, um, but, uh, who knows, maybe if someone makes a movie about her life, uh, there'll be enough interest that stuff will come out of the woodwork because, um, yeah, th th there's basically just traces of her here and there, um, in terms of her other correspondence outside of those two major archival collections. So my last question is, um, are you going to spend the rest of your life saving Ursula Parrott or do you have another subject in mind? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, uh, I don't know that I will spend the rest of my life saving Ursula Parrott, but I, I hope that, um, that one of the things I can do in the years to come is just to try to keep the kind of enough energy around her um, and around her works and um, start having as many conversations with people as possible, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but, you know, obviously through podcasts, through publishing articles, that, that her work is taught again, because, you know, that's the way these things happen, right? Like if you are taught yeah. something in your high school and college classes, that becomes part of your, you know, cultural memory, your literary memory. Um, and that's the way these things happen. They have to kind of enter the canon in some ways. So that's actually an interesting challenge I've presented to myself. I've 
started drafting an op-ed about this that um, I'm not entirely sure where the ideal place to place it is, but about, you know, like, how about you teach Ursula Parrot this fall in your <laughs> American literature yeah. class? Um, well, one place you might think about, and maybe you already have, is LitHub. Yeah, I, I actually just published an article in LitHub on... Um, on Ursula Parrot and burnout and work-life balance. So that, oh, that yeah. just appeared like a week or so ago. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, no, so I was really happy to get to write about that because to me, uh, again, kind of Parrot, I think was, she saw the writing on the wall for a lot of things that, you know, when you pointed out like that, that are still relevant, this is still like contemporary feeling. And one of them was this kind of question of, of women's burnout when they're trying to like hold everything together and, you know, do the things right. Have a, you know, have a good career and be a good wife, yeah. be a good mother. Like that that's really, really hard to do. And she wrote about that a lot. And so um, that article is focused on that, but so I, I will be so happy a, if um, more of her works can, um, can be republished, but then also if people start, teaching her and she, you know, I, I like to think that these kinds of changes in, um, in what we value um, as, uh, as a culture, they're always changing, right? It's not static. There are, you know, there's people who are so front and center, you think, oh my gosh, like they, they are cemented there forever, but then they fall out of favor. And then there are people who fill that gap and fill that space. And so I think, you know, my provocation in some ways is like, well, what would happen if you didn't treat or didn't teach Great Gatsby and you taught ex-wife instead? Like, would the world collapse? You know, <laughs> would, the, would it stop spinning? But the more moderate stance, and I think um, one that I think uh, would be really productive is what if you taught the Great Gatsby alongside ex-wife? Yes. I actually think they're beautiful companion pieces because one is from such a male perspective, the other from such a female perspective. Um, they're, they're novels of the same time and place, but they're looking at that time and place through such different lenses. But I think the craft of Parrot's novel um, at points um, is very much um, you know, on par with Fitzgerald's in terms of the wit and um, just the kind of textures of, of this time and place. And so um, the rest of my life, I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be bothered if in 20 years people are still asking me to talk about Ursula Parrot because you know, if that's, if that's uh, something that I can give back to um, to the culture by by being her advocate. Um, great. But, you know, maybe some other advocates will jump in the ring. Maybe this is the first biography, right? Maybe. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe yeah. other books. And I certainly hope dissertations and things like that will will come out. But um, but we shall see. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, we just need people to go out and buy your book. Yeah. And, and read Ursula Parrot. Yeah. And um, if you read it, I would love to hear what you think. I, I, it's been one of the great pleasures. Um, as you know, you spend years writing these books and researching them, and then you put them out. And reviews are one thing, which they're wonderful. It's great to see reviews. But my favorite thing so far has been people who just, you know, find me, you know, Google my name and NC State. My email address is very easy to find. And send me an email like I had never heard of this woman. I read your book. You know, I heard you on this podcast or read the New Yorker review or whatever. That 
makes my day. I can't tell you, like I just beam all day when I get a message like that. So if you read my book, I would love to hear what you think. If you read X Life, I would love to hear what you think. And um, tell your high school teacher and college professor friends to give X Wife a shot. Good idea. Thanks very much, Marcia. Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate it. Sure. I'll be posting this shortly and I'll send you a link. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.